0: In Second uh, Peter chapter 1, uh, beginning as we're going to start today on verse 12, through the end of the chapter, <clears throat> is one of the most important uh, sections in the New Testament, um, not only because of the theme that Peter has been developing in the second book, his second letter, but because it, is, it contains a very important section on inspiration. And so on the, I just had a lot to write here, and Woody and I made an executive decision. There was a little bit of writing on the left-hand side of this, and our executive decision was we were going to erase it. So if any blame comes from doing that, Fred is the one you would talk to, because he's the boss. He give, he empowers us. He delegates authority to us, and we made That's an executive power, right? decision. Yeah. I don't think it, it really didn't look like it was that important. The other side is, there's got a lot of stuff on that, but. So anyway, I hope there won't be a problems. But I decided to, uh, I, I'm, I'm very skeptical we're going to be able to get through all this today. Um, and if we don't, of course, it will be your fault, because you've asked a lot of questions. Today's but, my But, uh, huh? Yeah. Yeah. No, but in all seriousness, I, I, I really believe that um, at least getting the overview of it will be important. And then on the other uh, pad, uh, written uh, on the uh, paper pad there, I have three terms that are central to our faith. They're doctrinal terms, if you will, theological terms. They're, they're actually terms of the in the scriptures, but you. you sorry, and it's the term revelation, inspiration, illumination. And as you, if you can follow what I'm doing, they are inextricably linked. The revelation is God's choice to reveal Himself to us. Inspiration is how He did it. And illumination is the resource for us to understand and apply it. And in all those cases, as those things are addressed in the Bible, it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who does, or maybe a better way of saying it, is the instrumental person of the Trinity, the third person who affects those three things. And so... um, Again, I don't know if we're going to be able to get through all this, uh, and obviously this won't remain here until next week. But uh, if 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 you are taking notes or you're you're interested, get it, it's probably good for you to get try to get all this down because I probably won't re- rewrite all this the next week. Real quick question. Uh huh. Please. The
1: first two. you said illumination was how we
0: apply it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Revelation is God choosing to reveal Himself. Obviously. Uh, inspiration is how he chose to reveal himself verbally in a book called the Bible. And illumination is the resource, which is the Holy Spirit, for us to be able to understand and apply that revelation to our lives. So, that, I mean, there are three really important terms. Um, unfortunately, I would estimate that very few evangelical Christians could talk intelligently about any of these. You will no longer be among that group, okay? And nobody laughed at that. I was hoping somebody, you're, but I want you to know this. I really do. Uh, yeah, I just
1: wanted to share with you. You, yeah. you just uh, touch on so many things that are not in the book that we're studying that it really helps, you know, and Fred sent it out you know, last week early this week and, uh, um, but, uh, what was it? The three, uh, what was it? A glorification.
0: Sanctification. Oh, yeah. Justification, sanctification, glorification, yeah. 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 And they're and there's all. there's
1: nowhere in 1st and 2nd Peter. Yeah, you, know, <laughs> you gave that to us. Yeah. And that's the, that's the blessing that we receive when you are sharing.
2: How about the Bible
0: well, thank you, thank you. And it is taking uh, New Testament or Old Testament for that matter, terms and putting them in succinct ways. That's what doctrine is. That's what theology is. It's studying all sixty six books of the Bible and then making statements about what it teaches throughout the Bible and this is this is really this meaning what we're discussing here in this part of second Peter. Is, is a very important section. So what I want you to do, and again, I'm just telling you a little bit about what those terms mean, and how we're gonna look at those. Uh, we're gonna start 12, and this is really neat how Peter does this. He mentions the truth, and I'll, we'll see where that is. And he says in effect, because they're in, imperfect, so it's an ongoing, I'm going to continue to remind you of these things so that you will recall these things. Now that's summarizing, using three words, what is in verses 12 through 15. But he says, what I am reminding you of, the truths I'm reminding you of, so that you'll just keep recalling them, you won't forget them, is based on, one, an eyewitness account. Myself, meaning Peter, and other disciples. We saw Jesus transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then secondly, that the word of God is an inspired word. And in verse 21 particularly, he explains how the Holy Spirit did that. And so what I want to do in this section is I want to go to, when we get to the, 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 the section of 19 through 21, I also want to go to 2 Timothy 3.16. And you'll hear me say, 2 Timothy 3.16 is the what of inspiration. And 2 Peter 1.21 is the how of inspiration. Again, I'm throwing an awful lot at you right at the beginning. I'm putting a lot on the table. And uh, as I said, I, I don't really believe we will get through all of this this morning. But it's, that's all right. So this is, this is a, a very, very important section for us. And I want to try to use this as I was studying for it. I decided to add some doctrinal teachings to it, meaning this stuff. <laughs> and I think you'll, you'll find it helpful, or at least I hope you will. So, uh, I guess my just initial question, does this sort of make sense to you? I'm breaking this into parts, which is what you should do anyway, that makes it easy for us to understand what exactly Peter's doing here. Okay? Nobody said okay, but I'm still going okay. forward. All right. <laughs> Now, just look at verse twelve. Let's read. Uh, I'll read twelve through fifteen, and we'll go back and kind of take it apart. It's not hard. But therefore, now you know the, the therefore is based on what he has been teaching about these virtues and the process of growth, sanctification, all that we've discussed. I intend always to remind you of these qualities. I mean, you hear what he's saying. This isn't the first time you're going to hear this. I'm going to keep teaching this to you. What? Well, what he's taught in the first 11 verses. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. This isn't the first time you heard it, and I've just told you, this isn't going to be the last time you're going to hear it. Even though you're established in the truth that you have. Well, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. What does he mean by verse 14? Yes, he's soon going to die. His days are numbered. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. 12 through 15 is not difficult. It's not hard to understand what he's saying. I have taught you these things, even though you're established in the truth, and I want to tell you, because I'm soon going to die, I'm going to keep reminding you of these things with one intended result. That when I die, you're going to be able to recall them. So if, let's think of it this way. what From this little passage, what is the legacy Peter wants? a big fortune with a huge diversified portfolio? I'm making that up, but... He wants others to continue his work. Yes. He's teaching them so they can teach others. He wants... He will keep reminding them and reminding them and reminding them. That's a, it's, a, it's imperfect. It's an ongoing. I'm going to keep reminding you, reminding you. That's what that means. So that when I'm gone, you will be able to recall these things.
1: So the question about right that, with... Comparing Paul and when you read through Acts, I'm just now plowing through Acts, and he, he was definitely controversial, definitely confrontational. So I can see where yeah he was going to run into trouble. Not is, is Peter doing the same things? I don't see in the book where he's really being controversial. And really, I mean we just talked last week about how he was like trying, he was sitting with both sides. Almost accommodating the Jews and the Gentiles. With it. Well, like like,
0: yeah, okay. I think you're you're making a good observation uh, that Paul is much more confrontational than Peter. But the reason for that—remember, we have 13 letters of Paul, and we have two of Peter—and really all, well, maybe with the exception of Romans, but all of the letters that Paul is writing. He's responding either to a series of questions that that church has asked him, or there are so many problems in that church, he's writing to correct the problems. Right. So he is intentionally confrontational because he's dealing with either uh, behavioral issues or doctrinal error issues that he's got to correct. So he is sometimes very in-your-face, whereas Peter is not. Peter's Both of Peter's epistles are very different in both their tone and in their intent. Um, and so it, it, they're both saying the same things often. I mean, what Peter, um, and we've just studied all that, when he's talking about those virtues and those, those, uh, those virtues that we spend a lot of time on, they are very similar to the fruit of the Spirit or the Beatitudes of Jesus, but just stated differently. And he's linking them together in a way that you don't necessarily see. So, I mean, that, that's a very good observation, but I think that difference can be explained by the nature of the epistles themselves. Peter is not specifically addressing major issues of false teaching. He's trying to give comfort and strength to churches that are under severe persecution. And so it's going to be different.
1: His voice is very first person. Mm Very. But what what drove him to be martyred? What what happened? Now, Paul, you get it. It's confrontational. Well,
0: both both Peter and Paul are both uh, executed in AD 68 at the heights of Nero's persecution. When Nero, you know, for a variety of reasons, the great fire in Rome is one of them. The fire in Rome he blamed it on the Christians and took out after them. So Peter and Paul are both executed uh, as in the same wave of persecution, uh, perhaps for different reasons, but primarily because they both were key leaders in this emerging movement of the church. Just by the fact that he was leadership. Exactly, exactly. Thank you. So if if you look at that section twelve through fifteen, which we've just read, Peter brawls in a very autobiographical statement. The Lord has told me I, my days are numbered. I'm going to 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 die, and as you know, he was martyred. But he's saying, therefore, my job is to keep reminding you of these truths, so that you'll recall them when I'm gone, and that's the that is. That is a good goal. If your father, Andrew, that is a good goal. I say Andrew, because his children are really young, the youngest by far of anyone around this table. But to just keep reminding your kids of the truth. Just keep saying it over and over again. They, they tell us that for a truth to really be integrated into a person's heart, mind, and soul, they have to hear it at least seven times. Truth, truth is something you have to hear over and over again, not only to intellectually understand it, but to to really make it a part of you. In other words, where you're integrating it into how you think about things. And that's really true of anything, particularly, that you're reading or studying. But think of how important that is with biblical truth. That's one of the reasons why it's really important you go to church and hear the Word of God preached and taught. And that you know, a lot of you, you choose to come to this study on Wednesdays. And my whole goal in in all that I do is what Peter's saying here, to keep teaching and reminding people of the truth, so when I die, you can recall what I was teaching you. In other words, what the Holy Spirit inspired. You know, I was talking to a guy this morning, and uh, we were talking about something C.S. Lewis wrote, and. I was reminded of something, you know, C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you know this, but C.S. Lewis died on November the 22nd, 1963, the same day Lincoln, Lincoln, the same day Kennedy was assassinated is, is when he died. And so nobody, you know, nobody remembers that, although he was a very well-known Christian evangel- uh, apologist at that time. Well, anyway, I say that because 1963, that was a long time ago. You know, people are still talking about his writings, still talking about what he said. His books are still influencing people. And his whole, his whole legacy is not that he was a professor of Renaissance and medieval literature at Oxford University and in the last, oh, eight years of his life, the same position at Cambridge University, the two premier universities in England. It was what he wrote. That's his legacy. And, his, I mean, you can still read mere Christianity and be incredibly blessed by how he says things. And and you can read the Chronicles of Narnia, which is an allegory. It's really about Jesus. That's really what, Aslan is Jesus. If you've ever have any of you read the Chronicles, you know. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean it, it's just it's it, it, it's a tremendous. It it makes such an impact on you. You just don't forget it, because you just keep going over and over some of that in your mind. That's what Peter's saying. So what he does now. And this is why this is so valuable. He says, this truth, which I keep reminding you of so that you will recall it, is not something I just pulled out of thin air. And so what he does is he, he does something that's very important for you and me. This truth is based on eyewitness accounts which always is the test of veracity. Uh, uh, veracity means truthfulness. It's always the test of something being true, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If, you're, you know, if uh, somebody's being put on trial, the key element that will be determining whether they're guilty or innocent is witnesses that can validate the charge um, and, and so on. So what Peter does now is he says, first of all, and now transitioning to verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly designed myths. Now that's right, ESV translates it, cleverly devised myths. The Greek word is mythos. That's where we get myth. What's that talking about? All of the tales of Zeus and Aphrodite and Apollos, you know, all those mythological tales, that were the heart of the Greco-Roman worldview. And Peter somewhat cynically says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths that were made up to just explain something. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, two of the things he taught them, the power of Jesus Christ and the coming of Jesus Christ. Now the word coming, there's parousia, that can refer to his first coming or the promises of his second coming. Peter would have taught both of those. You still with me? So what I'm teaching about the power and parousia of Jesus is not based on cleverly devised myths like the Greco-Roman worldview. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And notice he uses first person plural, we. He and the other disciples and Paul and Barnabas. I mean, all of those who are called apostles in the New Testament. We are eyewitnesses of these claims. I he would have said, I saw Jesus walk on water. I saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And not only did I see it, but Bartholomew saw it, Nathaniel saw it, and Andrew saw it, et cetera, et cetera. We witnessed this. And another thing always to remember, this is so important in the apologetic you and I give for the scriptures. Do you know how many copies of Aristotle's ethics book there are there are five. Aristotle wrote his Nicobedean ethics about uh, 335 B.C. He writes it in 335 B.C. The earliest copy we have of that is 1200 A.D. That's 1500 years separating the event And the book, Jesus Christ dies on April the 3rd, A.D. 33, and ascends back to the Father about 50 days later, A.D. 33. A.D. 49, the Gospel of Mark is written. Now, my math tells me that's 16 years. An event, a record of the event based on eyewitness accounts. Mark spent countless hours interviewing Peter. Now I'm saying all that because any test of truthfulness and veracity is based on closeness of the account to the time of the event and the trustworthiness of the witnesses. That's what Peter's doing here. This isn't like the stuff that's associated with the Greco-Roman world. This is based on eyewitnesses. And if you don't believe me, ask Andrew, and ask Nathaniel, and ask Bartholomew. You know what I mean? Just ask them all. They're still living. And then ask the hundreds. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 500 people saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. And they're still living in Jerusalem, he says. Why does he tell you that? If you don't believe me, go ask them. They're still living. And 500 witnesses to any event... In any standard of truthfulness, is a pretty good test of a reliable eyewitness. If one people, if a person says, it, oh, I don't know, you yeah, know, sounds pretty fantastic. But if 500 living people are still hanging around and can tell you exactly what happened, all of a sudden you, you tilt the scale of credibility toward truth. And I'm getting real animated here. So Peter is saying we're eyewitnesses of this. I saw his power manifest. I was with him for three, over three years in his first parousia, his first coming. For when he had received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. What event is Peter referring to here? The Mount of Transfiguration. Our fullest account of that is in Matthew 17. And Peter is—he's just—he's summarizing. I saw it, I heard it, and this is what the Father said. And he goes on, and again he's using first person plural because he wasn't the only one who saw it. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, but when we were on the holy mountain. So it's an eyewitness account of a seminal event in the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And here's what happened. Just like Matthew said it happened and gave us the details of what happened, I was there, this is what I saw, this is what I heard. Uh, Glenn.
1: Because they, to, to write that in the Gospels, they weren't there,
0: right? Peter, James, and John were there. But the Gospel writers were not. Peter, we know Mark interviewed and spent a lot of time with Peter. So he is recording what Peter said.
1: So has he written epistles as well that just are bundled here? Who's the he? Mark, because he was part of the Coptic church. He's giving credit for the Coptic church.
0: Well, yeah, uh, well, that's a whole other issue I don't want to get into. But, <laughs> it, it's, but your question is what is your question about Mark?
1: Did he write other epistles oh. based off of Peter's
0: interviews? The Not. It's certainly not that are canonical. But there is no, I am not aware of any significant additional writings of Mark other than the Gospel. Okay, okay. Rob.
1: So for whatever right. reason, rightly or wrongly, I've associated that phrase, this is my beloved son with whom I'm pleased, <clears throat> to Jesus' baptism. Am I just-
0: same, it's the same, basically the same thing. At his baptism, the Father says almost the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's really there's an awful lot you can do with that phrase we can take that apart but we're not going to do that but we could take that apart doctrinally and theologically that is really really important but we're not going to do that alright so I mean what I'm trying to this he's saying something about this truth that he keeps reminding him of I didn't make this up and pull this out of thin air I saw this stuff and he keeps using the first person plural, we, 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 because others saw it. And if you don't believe me, go ask them, type of thing. All right. Maybe we will get through all this. Verse
1: 19.
0: I'm trying to in. What's that? Oh, no. <laughs> um, and we have something more sure, that's how the ESV is translated. Something more sure, more certain. Now, if you really want to cl- clarify what he's saying, what is that which is more sure, more certain? There should be a little equal sign between something more sure, equal the prophetic word. And when Peter is uttering this, approximately A.D. sixty-one or so, when he's uttering, what does he mean by the prophetic word? The Old Testament. See, all the Old Testament prophecy, major and minor, all prophesied this kind of thing happening. And he says something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention, meaning what? You should read that. You should spend time with that, because all of the Old Testament prophecies point to Jesus. How do we know that among obvious reasons? You study it, you see it. Luke 24 is my favorite passage of Scripture. If there's one event I would want to go back to in H.G. Wells' time machine, it's that event. Because in Luke 24, Jesus is walking with the two disciples from Emmaus. And the resurrection has occurred. Jesus is now, this is, and he hides his identity for a period of time to these guys. They're all upset they're angry at him because you hadn't heard about this. You don't know what we're talking about. Who are you? Just you drop in from Pluto? I just made that up. But that they're just incredulous. He doesn't know what they're talking about because he's feigning it. And then it's just remarkable. He starts to slowly reveal himself to, him and it says, "And he taught them everything in Scripture, how it pointed to him as the Messiah." Can you imagine these two individuals? If I had been there, I'd have an MP3 player. I'd have had it on. And then I would have gone home to my office, and I've recorded all that out and written a book. That would have been the bestseller. Isn't that a selfish thing to think? But I mean, hearing Jesus giving a running commentary on the Old Testament, and everything pointed to him. That's, That's
1: in Luke 24.
0: Luke 24. That, just think of what that would have been like, and so what, what I'm, the reason I'm saying that is, th- this is what Peter's referring to. The prophets all point to him, to Jesus, and that's what you need. So when you, I, he's saying, I want you to go back and I want you to read this stuff. Pay attention to this stuff. He says, as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the dawn, dawn the day dawns and morning star rises in your heart. Now, he, he, Peter's using figurative language here, but it's the same language you see in the, in, in the Psalms. Oh, Lord, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It, it gives guidance and direction and clarity to, to, to my life and to what's happening. So that's what he says. Pay attention as, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is God's revelation to you. This is God's revelation to you. Pay attention to this. Because even my eyewitness account of what I saw Jesus is important. But you know even more important is the inspired word of God, which is like a lamp unto your feet. And now Peter is going to launch into verse 20 and 21 to an extraordinary, an extraordinary Insight into how inspiration occurred. I saw a couple of hands here. You, yeah, John. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his
2: book, The Challenge of Jesus, he closes the book with the challenge to, like these two men running back to Jerusalem, we are to go and tell our own mm-hmm. story, the road one. story.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, that's I exactly right. I just love the way he put that. That's exactly right. And and it, those, and those guys did.
2: Take our own story and go forward. Yeah.
0: And that's what those guys did. They went back to Jerusalem. Yep. After, And they had a delightful meal. Anyway, that has nothing to do with it. They even had some Starbucks coffee like you did. Now. None of that's in the Bible. I just thought I'd say it. So, are you, are you with me so far? Everybody tracking? All right, now, um, let me read 20 and 21, and then I want to go to some of this other stuff I have up here. We are going to do this today. I can't believe it. Pay attention, et cetera, et cetera. Knowing, and verse 20 now, knowing, that's a causal participle. You could translate it. Because we know, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, I uh, where did I put that? I put there in red. This is the how of inspiration. Now, what I want to do, and a lot of you have a Bible, so you can easily go go back, turn back to Second Timothy. And I say back, you're going left in your Bible. Go left to Second Timothy and land in chapter 3, the very end of the chapter. In verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3, lays out for us the what of inspiration. What is inspired, and we'll to talk about what inspired means. All scripture is, and this is the Apostle Paul writing, so it's a different author, but same theme. <coughs> All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable... Notice this. It's worthwhile spending. It's like Peter says, pay attention to this stuff. It's profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness with this intended result, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So the Word of God which is inspired, is the key to how you're going to live your life. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof. You know what reproof means, don't you? You reproved your children (laughs) a lot when they were growing up. (laughs) For correction, they get off the track, you want to bring them back. And for training in righteousness. Here's the intended result of the inspired word of God. The man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. This is how God changes you. This is the key to transformation. It's the Word of God. Now, what I want to do here. I honestly didn't think we'd get to it, so this is great man. I'm going to erase this now because we don't need it. That red must be, oh, Andrew, um, what do I do
2: here? It'll come off. No huh? I'll, I'll work on that a little later.
0: Uh-oh. So why don't you take this from me, not let, let me use it anymore, okay? I am really sorry. I just That'll come
2: off. It's okay. So we got to
0: pass the hat for a new board now, huh? And I'm going to leave this room with a heap of guilt on my shoulders of what I've done. All right. Uh, this is kind of hard because of this red, but we're talking here about the. the I'm not dealing with this. The doctrine of inspiration. Okay. Now, assuming uh, revelation is simply a term. It's a New Testament term. It's a term meaning God has revealed Himself the infinite, eternal, immortal, omniscient, present omn- all that God has chosen to reveal himself. Okay? How has he done it? Well, he does it in his creation and so on, but that's not the focus of these verses. It's through a verbal revelation, through his word. Okay? And the doctrine of inspiration, this second one, is something that the Holy Spirit does. Now, what I want you to notice in 2 Timothy 3.16 is... All scripture is breathed out by God. That's a remarkable way to put it. In Greek, it's one word, theopneustos. Aren't you glad I told you that? Theopneustos. But it's breathed out. It's literally expired out of the mouth of God. That's literally what that means. That's why this is God's word. So 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us the what of inspiration. It is the verbal revelation, the graphe, the scripture is inspired. It's God breathed. Inspired. It that's it comes from that. In in inspiritas, it's from the Spirit. It's inspired. So that's what Second temp, Peter 121 tells us how did God do this? And so if you go back to Second Peter, well, I don't have to go back, I can just flip it up here. So what does he say? He says, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, but was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here you have, let's just say, Peter. Here's Peter. He is writing first and second Peter. Okay? So does Peter use his own words? Yes. Does he use his own style? Yes. Does he use his own illustrations? Yes. But the Bible says, as he is, Peter is writing this, the Holy Spirit, I'm going to abbreviate that, HS, Holy Spirit, ESV translates it, the Greek word is Pharaoh, but ESV translates this we're carried along. So as Peter is writing this text using his words, his style, his inter- the Holy Spirit is carrying him along. I like Robin Hood, so that's why it sounds weirder than his.
1: I like yours, <laughs> that's cool.
0: carried along you could translate it super intended. That's not as easy it doesn't sound as nice but that's really the, that's really the idea. So the Holy Spirit carries along Peter, carries along Paul, carries along Moses, carries along David as they're writing whatever it is they're writing using their own word, vocabulary, their own writing style, their own illustration, but he's superintendent. What does superintend mean? Uh, as an English word, what does superintend mean? It's Overseeing, overriding, guiding, guarding. Mm-hmm. So that when the ink dries on that parchment, it's the word of God. That's why Paul says, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in Righteousness. This is how God equipped to do what he wants you to do. And so you combine, I erased it now, but you, you combine 2 Timothy 3.16. What is inspired? All scriptures inspire. How did God do it? The Holy Spirit, who is the key in revelation, inspiration, and we'll talk about this in a minute, illumination, is the Holy Spirit superintending the writing of every one of the authors of the Bible all 66 books, superintending it, guarding, guiding, protecting, so that when that ink dries on that piece of parchment, that's the word of God. That's how, um, that's how we are, I'm going to leave this here because I think I'm going to write one more thing. Now what I just, this is a little hard uh, sometimes to just kind of intellectually think through this. And so I want you to, Ask questions, or, or ask me to clarify something. Second Peter, sorry, Second Timothy three sixteen tells us what is inspired. Answer all Scripture. How did God theopanustas? How did He breathe this out? Does that mean He, sitting up there in heaven, says, "Okay, you're at the you're at the word processor, Peter? Uh, here's it. I, Peter, and apostle." Okay. Of Jesus Christ. Is that it? Not mechanical detection. It's Peter sitting down, Mm -hmm. and for all the reasons that he has, and he's told us to remind you of this, so you recall it, sitting down and writing. But as he's writing, using his own words, did he do research? If you look at Luke, both Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, Luke tells us, I did research. I interviewed a lot of people. I spent a lot of time on this. And so he's using all the tools that anybody uses to write something accurately. But as he sits down to write, the Holy Spirit is superintending what he does. So that there's no error, no mistake, no contradiction. It's exactly what God wanted to be declared. And you know, then, then we're, we're getting. Then, if I get into this, we're going way beyond what I wanted to do. But there are just multiple ways in which we can validate this, this process, in terms of its accuracy, in terms of its non-contradictory nature, in terms of the amazing unity of the sixty-six books. And again, just thinking of what I mentioned a moment ago with Luke twenty-four, what Jesus would have taught. These are mass disciples. So, I, I've this is a this is a major doctrinal issue. Why is it an issue? Because the critic of the Bible sees it's just it's just like the Gilgamesh epic of ancient Babylonia or the Greek myths of Greece and Rome. Okay. And and my argument is no, it's not. But if you really want to delve into this, it's going to take some time. You're going to have to let me lay out the case for why this is trustworthy. And that, I mean, that, but for you and for me, these two passages of Scripture, which should always be studied together when when your subject is trying to understand how the Word of God came about. What has inspired all Scripture? How did it occur? Human authors using all their unique vocabulary, style, and illustrations, writing, the Holy Spirit superintending—that's that's exactly what carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's just—it's almost an impossible. It's almost an impossible uh, word to translate into another English word. Just one English word. So that's why they say "were carried along." That's how they're translating it in ESV, and that's still in one sense that doesn't help very much. Carried along—what does that mean? That's why I I like to use the because it's a very legitimate uh, meaning of pharaoh in in Greek. It's superintending. He's superintending the work. He's overseeing, guarding, guiding, protecting from error. The written word of God. Applies Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Moses, David, and the writers of the New Testament. Uh, Well.
1: Um, the I think it's American Standard Version, <clears throat> similar to the, the King James, uh, translated, but men spake of God being moved by the Holy Spirit.
0: Yeah, moved.
1: Actually, That's right. I, I, you know, I misread that. I thought it was born by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. I related it to the passages in Isaiah that mm. formed the song on mm. evil's
0: eagles, and he mm. shall
1: bear you up. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I mean, there are a variety of ways in which it's translated. Like I said, it is it is very difficult to translate that one word. In fi- You really can't find one English word that captures it. From my vantage point, superintending is the best English word to capture what pharaoh means in Greek. But it's it's it, at one level, it's not hard. But at another level, you have to reach a conclusion. This is obviously describing... Trying to put in human words, a supernatural event. You know what I mean? A supernatural event. This is supernatural. But as I often say to my students, and I'll say it to you guys because you're my students, what you need to do, this is the claim that the Bible's making for itself. Now test that claim. I mean that. That, that I, I say that to people. Okay, I'm telling you, this is what the Bible claims for itself. Now, if you're willing and you're intellectually honest, test that claim. Okay, let's start, let's just start with one little item. There are 357 prophecies in the Old Testament that are declared about the first advent of the Messiah. Track them down. And ask yourself were they fulfilled? I mean, that's one, you're testing the claims of the Bible. Second, okay, go and look and itemize all of the prophecies that are laid out about the second advent. They haven't happened yet. But if 357 of the first happen, just humanly speaking, like you use in the odds when you play games at Las Vegas, which probably none of you ever have done, but you you then say, well, the odds are high that that's probably going to be fulfilled. But I'm just that's a that's a silly illustration, and just to bring some smiles. But nobody smiled. But it's the idea essentially that test the claims. So t- test test other things. The Bible makes a whole bunch of historical claims in the Old Testament. One example: the Bible speaks a lot of the Hittite Empire, and until nineteen or excuse me until eighteen seventy eight, everybody thought that was fictional. But then they made this massive. Massive discovery of a library outside of Ankara at Bohes which was the library of the Hittite Empire, validating and verifying everything the Bible said about it. So, archaeology becomes another way to test the claims. The Bible's making an historical claim. Paul, for example, mentions in 1 Corinthians, Erastus who was the treasurer of Corinth. Lo and behold, in Corinth we have found a plaque on a street named, named after Erastus, the treasurer, Erastus the treasurer of Corinth. The Bible made this historical claim, it's been valid. I'm just so it isn't something you can ignore. And thirdly, it's again when you go to the ancient world And you look at all of the books coming out of the ancient world and compare all those books with all books coming out of the ancient world are copies. We do not have the original copy of Julius Caesar's Commentaries on War. We don't. We do not have any of the original copies of Aristotle's Ethics. Everything's a copy. Is the Bible a copy? Yes. But then you start to examine how did they copy the Bible? And We have five manuscripts of Aristotle's ethics. And I told you, there are 1,500 years separating when he wrote it and the first copy we have of it. How many copies of the New Testament do we have? 5,500 copies. When I say copies, I mean original, I mean copies. People hand copied on a codex the Bible, the New Testament. We have five, over five, it's approaching uh, 5,500 copies. Okay, let's examine. In those 5,500 copies, do they do they disagree a lot? Because these are manuscripts. Do they disagree a lot? 94% of the time they agree. Now I hope you understand that statistic. And of the 6%, passages or words. It's a word or it's a letter in a word. And those differences do not in any way affect Christian doctrine. So all of a sudden, if people are intellectually honest, and they want to talk about it, you're building a case. This thing's trustworthy. I'm testing his claims. Now so I'm going to stop doing that. But that's something that... You see, you, you and I live in a world where everybody that's outside of the Christian faith just mocks this book and makes fun of that you believe it. Okay, okay, I understand, because there are some fantastic claims in this book. But I want you to treat this book the way you treat any book coming out of the ancient world. So the way you test the claims of a book coming out of it's history history, its veracity, its truthfulness, its reliability, its copy, test it. And you, if you're intellectually honest, you will reach this conclusion: the New Testament is the most attested book coming out of the ancient world. So then you're left with this issue. Okay? <sighs> Reluctantly, I've got to agree with you. This is what a person. Would like. Reluctantly, I've got to. Agree. Now it becomes a matter: do I believe it? And that's something that all the historical evidence and scientific claims, because now the person has to either, I believe what this is saying, or I don't believe what it's saying. The evidence is there. The foundation for believing it is true is there. But now you have to make that stuff of faith. I mean, have you ever heard anyone, have you ever heard anyone ever say, well, we only have five copies of Aristotle's work, and 1,500 years, therefore, I don't believe anything Aristotle wrote. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Nobody ever said three things. Nobody's ever going to say that. Oh, I believe everything that Aristotle said, even though they have five copies, and they disagree, and, and you know, 1,500, but I still, I believe everything about Aristotle. What about what Jesus said and did? The first gospel account is only 16 years after he died. And the copy, the earliest copy we have of that is in the nineties. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't believe that. It's just that that's inconsistent, and it's intellectually dishonest. And when I say it, it's a very incendiary thing to say, but it's intellectually dishonest because all the tests for truthfulness you use to accept Aristotle, you won't you will not accept those tests of evidence to accept the Bible. That's hypocritical. That's inconsistent. What you're really saying is you just don't want to believe somebody who makes those claims. Because it gets at the very heart of who you are. No, I don't want to believe it. I won't believe it, Despite the evidence. Now, I'm, I am way beyond this text. But that's why this is so important uh, for us. So, the it is everything I've been saying, plus um, this. Fred?
2: Um, I had a a young lady who was um, not really young, but a uh, lady who was in a restaurant and she, she knew me and she came by to say hi. I said hi. And, and uh, she, I don't know if she knows something about me in terms of you know, this Bible and so forth. And um, she said, uh, she said, Fred, I don't I don't have a word of it. And I said, well, you know, that's that's alright and and then she said uh, before I left she said but don't give up on me (laughs) Mm. Mm. and uh, so but this is graduate stuff that with the new believer uh, it's going to be a little hard to absorb just to a new believer just out of the gate and trying to get his feet on on the right path path of understanding, and a, a lot of you probably read Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict, but uh, he he supports exactly what you're saying, and you, I mean,
0: well, he of, adds uh, so much chapter after chapter of the details of, of this that are that I can't possibly go over. No. But no, it it no. is it, it, this is to use your metaphor this is graduate level stuff. But because it's, it doesn't mean it's not important.
2: Oh, absolutely. And it's, what I mean
0: by that is even for a new believer and some of you are a younger believer than others. But for a new believer it is important as you begin the, the walk with the Lord to to know that there is tremendous evidence for what I believe. What I have accepted as faith, there's been tremendous evidence for the value of me spending time with this book, of the result. Because what does Paul say? This book is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It doesn't say, all Oprah's works are breathed out by God. All Ellen DeGeneres' works, all Dr. Oswald, Dr. Phil. It doesn't say that. This is all scripture. So if you are serious about proper for teaching, for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, some of the stuff they're saying is helpful. But why not go to this and spend the time here and then maybe every now and then read some of the stuff they say. That's exactly the opposite of where our culture is. I mean, I'm amazed. I've spent so much time with men over the years they're try- they've tried all kinds of things to get answers to the questions. And then as a last act of desperation, they go to this. And sometimes they don't go to this at all. Whereas it, the Bible, is, I'll say it one more time, the Bible makes a lot of claims for itself. If you're going to be intellectually honest, just challenge people to test the claims. But to do that, it's going to take time, and it's going to take focus. But at the same time, If what they're saying, this is just a bunch of myths, it doesn't have, it's not historically true, okay? If you're willing to, I can make the case that it is historical true. Do you want to do that? I mean, because, you know, you can't say it in two minutes. There's no elevator speech for that. But at the same time, it doesn't mean it isn't true. And that's what most most people are so comfortable just rejecting it because... My teachers in in my college philosophy course told me this was a bunch of bunk, and I believe what that person said. Okay. Did they walk you through chapter by chapter? Did they test the claims of it for you? Of course, they didn't. They quoted Immanuel Kant, and that settled it. All right. We did do a little PhD level stuff, but I have a sense you really understand it, and you are willing to write a thought paper. on
2: inspiration
0: (laughs) tomorrow what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit I said tomorrow Um, next Wednesday I want to talk a little bit about the third term I wrote up there we did not get to that illumination God reveals it it's revelation he has revealed himself he tells us who he is what he's like and his plan how does he do it through inspiration the Holy Spirit Breathing out and superintending the work of the human authors, then the Holy Spirit who indwells us enables us to understand and welcome the truth. I want to go to a passage of Scripture that shows us that next week. It's just amazing to me. The Lord's provided it all for us, even able, and that's why when a, when a genuine a seeker after truth is serious. It is the Holy Spirit, John 16 says, who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It is the Holy Spirit who opens the heart of the person. And that's, that's what the Word of God does. It's just, uh, you know, you can brush it off and you can make light of it until you really start to read it and dig into it. Whenever a person says, I'm willing to read the Word of God, I get excited. Because if they really want to do that, the Lord will start to change them. That's exactly what's going to happen. Well, man, I I got off on a lot of bunny trails today. So, But this is important stuff, and I just decided to do that. I hope it was all right that I decided to do that. All right? Tomorrow then we'll... Uh, I keep thinking, Mom. Uh, next Tuesday then, <laughs> no, next Wednesday then, we'll finish this with a little more comments about illumination and then we'll continue in Second Peter, all right? Dear Lord, thank you that you uh, have not remained silent. You have chosen to reveal yourself in your creation where we just see the majesty and power and glory of your, your creative work everywhere, if we're willing to pay attention to it. And verbally in a book called The Bible, it's an inspired book, it is the Holy Spirit who inspired it, and it is the Holy Spirit who superintended the writing of it, so that when the ink dried on those parchments, it was the Word of God. And the early leaders treated it with great honor and respect and meticulously copied it. With 94% certainty, we can trust it. And even when there's some disagreements, that they affect no doctrine of the church. So, Lord, there's a lot of confidence when we take time to study it and take time to dig into it. It is. It is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It equips us for what you want us to do. So it's with that spirit that we study this each Wednesday. <coughs> pray your watch, care, and blessing over these men as they go their separate ways. And, and as we always try to pray in all they do and all they say, may they represent you well. In Christ's name. Amen. All right. See you guys next week. All right.